The Genealogy Guy podcast, demystifying technology and exploring family tree research. Please remember to subscribe and share the podcast with family and friends. Welcome to another episode of Armchair Genealogy, produced by Broadcast Media UK and presented by me, the Genealogy Guy UK. I'd like to say a very big thank you for the emails that have been coming in from listeners giving support along with ideas for future people to interview and suggestions for questions. It's always so nice to hear from every listener. Joining us now on Armchair Genealogy is Ted Udall, who knows an awful lot about the social history of the parish register. So to start us off with, Ted, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm um, I'm a retired person. I've... Um been a member of the Somerset and Dorset Family History Society for quite a number of years now, and I've been the secretary of the society for the last 12 years. One of the things that I tend to specialize in is teaching family history. In my previous existence, I used to teach people how helicopters worked, but uh, now I've left that behind. And uh, one of the things that I do is teach people how to get started with their family history. Your name I came across because you were giving a talk locally at the Somerset and Dorset Family History Society, Mid Somerset Group, which is a big mouthful. But on top of that, you were giving the talk across to the Somerset side and coming over to Glastonbury. And I saw the poster go up and I thought, I must have a chat with this, this gentleman because he obviously knows his stuff because everyone said, oh, it's a really good talk. It's worth coming along to. So I thought I'll have a chat to you separately just because I wanted the listeners to actually have a, a chance to hear your side and your take on basically parish registers. So what are they? If, if someone is just getting into, into genealogy and they were going, oh, you need to look at parish records, people go, oh, books, folders, it's really complicated and it's dated and it's dusty. How How is it all done? How, how does it work? Well, basically, the, the idea was, and it was generated really back in the days of Henry VIII, and it's continued on since then. But um, what you've got is uh, is a record of every child that is baptized, every couple that is married, and every person that is buried. And it's just simply a date, a name of the people involved, um, possibly with the later ones where they lived. But of course, the very interesting thing about a lot of these is that uh, the older ones in particular quite often give you some some of the uh, the parson's thoughts about what happened at the time. So uh, we're not true of the later ones because there isn't space to put them in on the record. But the older ones where they were just entered in a book, you quite often get little asides, um, notes about what the uh, what the vicar thought about the people involved sometimes, you know, quite often written in Latin because he didn't want to be sued for libel. Pretty sure that nobody else was going to read the things. So it gives you a chance to get some kind of insight into into the type of people they were and not just necessarily a name and a date. It sometimes does that. That's right. I mean, these things are, they do crop up occasionally. And I've had um, quite a few sent to me by various people say, look, have you seen this one, you know, and, and get in and have a look at this. And you go in and have a look at the register and it says something pretty scurrilous about, about the couple that are getting married or something, you know. Now, when I first started doing this sort of genealogy journey, because you, you never stop, you're always on a journey on it. So when I first started it, parish records were like, oh, you had to get in a car, you had to drive out to the actual area mm. to find the church. It was very complicated and very time-consuming. How have things changed nowadays? 
Well, of course, the vast majority of them are online on the ancestries of this world. You know, some are on ancestry, some are on find my past, because a lot of the repositories, um, Dorchester Record Office, the um, Somerset Record Office, or whatever we're calling it this week, they've got into bed with ancestry and they've had all their uh, their records digitized. And in a lot of cases, you not only can uh, can get access to an index of it, but you can see the original image of the document which is uh, is something you should do anyway, because um, even with the best will in the world, if you only make a 1% mistake in transcribing a document, that's an awful lot of mistakes over the whole country. Absolutely, because it can mean the difference between Smith, Smythe, Smat. So, I mean, there's so many yeah. variations on, on a particular mm. name, on one typo. And you're absolutely right. You want to see the actual image of the document so you know that you've seen it and it's not just well i think that's what it said on it but i didn't write it so i don't know yeah, very much so so how did how did you get into genealogy and, and parish records or is do you naturally fall into it or did it something you just found an affinity with it's something that well my grandmother lived to be 95 she died back in 1986 and i inherited some old documents from her including a few um marriage certificates and sort of things that you get, you know, photographs, wedding invitations, that kind of stuff. And that was what really spurred me on to get started. Um, I was working abroad at the time, but when I came back, I joined the Somerset and Dorset Family History Society. And uh, so it's just because my interest was piqued. So I thought, well, yeah, I should just try and find out a little bit more. And of course, the further you get into it, it's the thrill of the chase, isn't it? It's the detective story. You really want to be, you know, oh, I've got to find out a little bit more. Uh, and of course, the uh, the other thing, which a lot of family historians do, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of family historians do, is they spend so much time searching and they find all the information, but then they don't know what to do with it when they've got it. And, oh, where did I put that? And, you know, their their record keeping is not always the best. <laughs> it's a huge task. I mean, when, when you first set out, I mean, I did it right back at the beginning. And you just think, I just want the names. I just want to be able to trace it back and job's done and everything. But the more you do it, you, you're right. You you want more information. You want to know mm. what was life like? What Where did they live? Where, where did they go to school? And what mm. friends did they have and th they're all the things that you can find out but you need to go into things like parish records and um, birth certificates and all that to find out who were the witnesses and who were there and who was doing and saying what yeah that, that's another mistake that people make is to uh, to ignore the witnesses you know they might uh, come across a marriage record and but quite often the witnesses the names of the witnesses can point you at the correct family you know, because they may be relations, they may be friends, but uh, which doesn't help you much. But if they're relations, then, of course, that um, may very well point you at the fact that, oh, it's the wrong family. I'm not looking at the right people at all. And, of course, knowing that and back in ye, ye olde days, people didn't travel. So the chances were that they were also either neighbours or just lived in an adjoining street. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much. Actually, although you say that... Um, People did move around a little more than we think for. I, you know, I believe these days we, we used to think that uh, that people didn't move around very much. Um, but in my experience over recent years, people moved around a wee bit more than we, we used to give them credit for. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of that was usually based down to things like uh, the Industrial Revolution and, play, and things mm. like that. They were looking for work, so they had to go to where they could earn some money to, to bring mm. up their family. 
you know, there are still records um, related to that, um, not directly parish records as such, but you get all the all the things from the settlement laws of the 1660s. People would be examined uh, before a JP and they would say, well, this is, you know, they give a potted history of themselves and the JP would give them a uh, a license to move somewhere. Their parish of settlement would be obliged to get them back if they fell on hard times. Now, with with parish records, I appreciate that a lot of them are now online, but are, are some places still just you have to go and find the website, maybe the local village website, or are they, are they all going to cross onto Ancestry and My Heritage um, places like that? A huge amount of them have. There are one or two places where you can get uh, you can get free information. Um, the best place to start searching is a website called Genuki, G-E-N-U-K-I, Genealogy UK and Ireland. Um, and then you just click on, say, for example, England, and then you click on the county that you want. And it gives you all kinds of information, including uh, where to get hold of parish records and things like that. Because there's an organization called the Online Parish Clerks. Uh, they started off in Cornwall about 20 odd years ago, and they've gradually spread across certainly the south of England. They're very common. Not so much the further north you get, but um, they are an organization of volunteers that just choose a parish and go in and find all sorts of information about it. You mentioned the parish clerks and that. I mean, it just made me think of the parish councils. It's, it's amazing that each parish council has its own sort of job to do as it thinks it is now. But they all forget that historically all their committee members, everybody that's been working, all the jobs that have been done, that that should also be going into the archives because it's got names and dates from people associated with it. It does because um, although we family historians tend to follow the parish registers because that gives you the basic skeleton of you know who is married to whom and who the children are and when they die and so on, but there are all sorts of other um, other documents that uh, which were part of the vestry, the the parish organisation, um, including for example the accounts of the church wardens because they would have to rate and tax the uh, the parishioners for the upkeep of the church. They would have to record all incomings of money. They would have to recall who was being paid to, you know, upgrade the organ or build a new door or whatever it was. And then, of course, you've also got the overseers of the poor, because they had to put a, a rate and tax on all the parishioners so that they could pay people who'd fallen on hard times. So you've got records of money coming in, you've got records of money going out, and they're all names. Even simple things like paying the sexton to dig the grave or the grave digger to dig the grave for you know, X. And you can't find a burial record for them, but you've found this where they've laid out X amount of money for um, for burying the poor chap. You know, you mentioned about the, the poor and the, the poor houses and that. And you've got almhouses. Do, do almhouses fall under Irish records or are they a separate entity? They're a separate entity really they're normally set up by charities a long long time ago many of these i mean there's you know there are quite a few still in existence uh, but they were set up as separate charities and so they would tend to keep their own records uh, the the poor houses which are a parish thing in particular and then of course later on the workhouses as um, after the 1834 um, new poor law act they're all uh, in more general within the parish, if you like, because the parish was the unit which knew who the who the poor people were that were worthy of, of support and who were the people who were going to pay in. 
certainly when England was still an agricultural nation or, you know, mostly agricultural. You mentioned the New Poor Act. To go back one, the old poor law, which was, uh, which really stemmed, gradually grew out of the dissolution of the monasteries. Before that, anybody who fell on hard times could go along to the monastery and they were, it was their Christian duty to, uh, to look after them. Um, once the monasteries had been dissolved, of course, there suddenly there was more or destitute people on the streets. And so the government started thinking, well, what are we going to do about this? Slowly over a period of time, culminating towards the end of the reign of Elizabeth I, we get this thing called the Old Poor Law Act, which basically says if you're able to work, you work. If you're unable to work, you will be supported, you will get relief, but that will be within the parish where you live. Because, as I say, they were the people who knew who was, uh, you know, who was worthy of, of payment and who were going to pay in. So you were supported within the parish. Of course, then over a period of time, over the next hundred years or so, with the civil war going on and all the rest of it, by the 1660s, many parishes were preventing people, if you like. If they were liable to fall on hard times, they would say, right, you've got to stay here. Because if you go over in the next parish, they won't want you because you might suddenly become a tax burden on them. And so people get, you know, they had to become settled in inverted commas. De facto, that's what happened. And in 1662, a law was passed making it concrete. So um, people were then, as I mentioned earlier on, you had to stand up in front of a magistrate, say, yeah, this is my potted history. I want to go to work somewhere else. I've got an offer of a job. And then the magistrate would issue you with a license and off you'd go. But of course, if you were a person who, uh, and there were, the numbers were all all written down from time to time and changed. But um, if you were a person who who was able to afford rent of more than a certain amount, for example, then you would have been a net payer into the system so you could go where you liked. If you were unable to afford rent at that kind of rate, then you were liable to be a taker out from the system. And so therefore, your movements were restricted quite often to maybe 20 miles. Because, of course, the parish would have to pay for you to get you back if you fell on hard times. So, OK, well, we're not paying for you to go more than 20 miles away then. So if you were earning a, a, a low wage or no wage, you had to apply to be given permission to move to another area. and be Yeah. Oh, yeah. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. And quite a lot of these records still exist. Um, the, the Dorset ones are a bit thin on the ground. I've, I've not got any in Somerset personally. But I believe that the Somerset ones, they should all be held at the record office up at Taunton. Email the podcast by contacting us, info at armchairgenealogy.com. And now we return to the second half of the chat with Ted Udall, sharing his tips and knowledge about using parish records and documents. Because each area around the country has its own depository, basically, of, of where it stores its data and Fortunately, over the years, local history uh, centres have been set up all over the place. I think Somerset was one of the very first, I think, to have a proper, a purpose-built repository for the uh, for their archives. And of course, they've moved it since then to the new one out at Norton Fitzwarren. But yes, they're all uh, all set up for uh, you know they're all air conditioned and uh, you know all the stuff is kept in in a certain humidity range. So all these old documents on parchment and what have you are all uh, hopefully going to last forever and ever. Yeah, and the other thing I came across like when you're digging back in history and talking about 
be people um, having to get support to be able to live just a, a daily life was uh, friendly societies. How, how how did that sort of inter, interweave into the history? That's something which I'm not really all that familiar with it, but it's the sort of thing that um, they're the origin really of uh, what we know more recently as building societies. So it would be uh, somewhere where you could pay in a small amount, and then if you fell on hard times, they would take it. They would get a loan. So. Uh, Okay, so it, it basically it was like a, like an insurance policy to help you get through the rest of life. Virtually, yeah. Yeah, they, they tried all sorts of things. I mean, we talked about the old poor law, and I mentioned about settlement. And, of course, we were going to come on then to the new poor law, which which was because of the Industrial Revolution. Of course, people are moving off the land and into the, into the towns more. And the parish just wasn't up to the business of, especially in the towns, the parish just couldn't cope with all the people. And so they set up the new poor law, said, okay, well, you can all bunch together. You can form a union. You have to build a workhouse. And if people fall on hard times, they have to go into the workhouse in order to be supported. If you're going to do that, well, that means you've got to build a workhouse. You've got to put in the plumbing. You've got to put in the heating. You've got to, you know, you've got to pay the staff. And it all becomes a horrendously expensive. And actually, most parishes and most unions discovered that in fact, it's cheaper to pay people to stay where they are rather than force them to come in the workhouse. That really explains like why you get poor houses in the cities and the and the big towns and mm. you can get them out in, in sort of the rural areas. It's it's odd because there are one or two. Uh, I, I live in Yeovil, so um, the former workhouse, which is along Preston Road, is now Summerland's Hospital. That was built in uh, on a standard sort of plan, but in some, and it's it's on the what was then right on the edge of Yeovil, halfway between Yeovil and Preston Plucknet, effectively. Another one with which I'm familiar is the Beminster Union Workhouse in, uh, in Dorchester, which is plonked right on the border between the parish of Beminster and the parish of Stoke Abbott, which is the next one over. So it's as as near to the middle between them as possible. So it's it's right out of the way really out of the way of the of the local population. We're going to put all these poor people over there where nobody can see them. It sounds a bit like what they do nowadays is put all the, the, the people that are a, a bit in a bit of an inconvenience, stick them onto an estate out the way because nobody wants them around them instead of integrating them into society. Human nature hasn't changed, has it? You know, it's still now what it was then. You're, you're a gentleman of a certain age. So so what have, how have you felt the change of technology has has changed the way that you uh, you and and your fellow genealogy uh, friends have actually gone about doing doing their detective work. Well, you you mentioned that uh, you know in the old days you used to go along to uh, to an archive somewhere, and uh, you would well you can still do it. Of course, you can um, get in touch with them in advance and say, look, this is what I want to have a look at. You can't these days handle the old parish registers the same way that you used to uh, because they've all been microfilmed and they're all pretty much available online these days, some, somewhere or another. But you can go along and look at all sorts of other documents. There are quite often you've got uh, deposits of, say, for example, solicitors documents, you know, deeds and stuff like that, which you can go along and, and look through um, copies of wills all kinds of things that you can go along and actually have a look at at uh, your local repository. That hasn't really changed. The difference is that now if you want to build the basic structure of your family history, so you want to look at the, you know, the, the basics of the parish register, births, marriages, or 
baptisms, marriages, burials, then you can do most of that online. And there are, you know, it's a huge industry now compared with uh, with what it was 30, 40 years ago. What people don't, because I, I have this conversation with people and, you, and they, they think you can just go to, to one platform and that's it. That's all you have to do is to, to join up. And they don't realize that Ancestry's got a collection of certain things, but not everything. And then my heritage will have, and then the genealogist will have another one. Uh, and each one has its own speciality. And some of them have more information than you can possibly ever want, but then it just suddenly stop and you, you can't find anything else and you have to go to another platform. What are your thoughts on the fact that all these different companies are all trying to own the data all the time? Yes, they are indeed trying to do that. Uh, but of course, the uh, the people who actually own the original information are a bit canny as well, because they know that, uh, you know, it's like selling your birthright. And so what tends to happen is that one of the big companies, say Ancestry, for example, will have the will have the rights to this information, to publish this information online for a certain period of time, after which the others can then have a go at it, um, you know, and they can start publishing online. The, uh, the end result of that, of course, is that each company is producing an individual transcription of each of these things. And as I mentioned before, even with a 1% typo rate, you will guarantee, of course, that if two or three companies are producing the same information, there will be different typos. So if you can't find something on one database, you go and have a look at the other one because they might have it. As a tip then, basically, if you find the original image, then you should save that and add it to your data, not just oh, the yes. typed version. Because three or four years later, you could think, oh, I found this, I found this, the, oh, the, the spelling's completely different. And then you look at the original document and you'll go, no, it's the same document. Someone's just misread it. And, and the other thing which uh, just suddenly occurs to me, we talked about parish registers earlier on. There is something called bishop's transcripts, and they are supposed to be a copy of the parish register information, which was sent off to the bishop once a year. Uh, they have mostly been transcribed by family history societies, usually all oh, 30, 40 years ago. But of course, the index with all this information has been interleaved with the original parish register. So we've got effectively one document. And that isn't necessarily what you'll find online, because if if people are going along and transcribing the parish register, sometimes the bishop's transcript will give you some extra information, because for some reason... They weren't made generally as copies of the register. They were made as copies of the original bits of paper on which the information was written because the registers were supposed to be made up on Sunday after the service, everything that happened in the preceding week, which meant that the vicar or whoever had to write it on a bit of paper. On Sunday, you had to get all the bits of paper put in the right order and then put them in the register. And you can see straight away there's an issue here potentially for, for people to lose the bits of paper. And then when they're making up the bishop transcripts, all of a sudden they find one that's fallen down the back of the bureau somewhere. And, oh, hang on, we've got an extra one here. And so the bishop transcript sometimes has extra information over and above what the parish register has. So you have to be aware that if you can't find someone in a parish register, that's when you should go along to your local repository and look at their printed index that they have, say, for example, in Norton Fitzwarren or in Dorchester, you go along and you look at their printed index for that parish, because that will have the bishop's transcripts, the BTs, will be interleaved with the parish register information. 
Whereas if you look at the, you know, you look at the image of the parish register, you might not find the entry you're looking for. It's a sort of a, a backup information. So you could actually find out the, the respelling of a name according to how they were baptized com compared to what the bishop's notes have actually got down there. Bishop's transcripts, when when the postal service came in, they were allowed, if they, they addressed them in a certain fashion, they were allowed free postage. So they could post these things off in a package. Uh, and they would then go off to the uh, to the to the bishop, the diocesan register. Um, but if they failed to put the correct form of address on the thing, the postal service would still deliver the thing. But they would say, well, you know, it's not being correctly addressed, so you've got to pay. And the bishop's office would go, no, we're not paying for that. And, and they get thrown in the bin. <laughs> and the, the other thing, of course, is that the clergy, especially young clergy who who were perhaps fairly new to the business, had this really strange idea that their bosses might actually read this stuff. And so they quite often they took great deal of care with the bishop's transcripts, which they didn't take so much with the register. And so sometimes, you know, these things are really well written and there's all kinds of little snippets of extra information that are popped in. And sometimes completely weird typos, like they've swapped four names between two parties at a marriage, for example, you know, so... You uh, you sometimes read these things and think, mm, what were they thinking when they wrote this? The amazing thing is with, with a lot of this information, when you go back historically, because a lot of people didn't read or write or couldn't do it very well, and everyone has an, a, an accent according to where they were in, in the country, and if they've moved, their accent sounds different to other people, that you get all these weird anomalies where people's names change and and it just mm. just becomes... Like the, the the typo becomes different, or the, the their name changes from Ron to Rob, because they don't quite hear that there was an N on the end, and they they just change somebody's name, and it completely throws you off track when you're starting to go through going, well, this is obviously the wrong family. I've got the wrong family because the name's wrong. And of course, you also have to remember that even people that didn't move around that could still happen because the incumbent, the vicar, would be an outsider possibly from a different part of the country. And so he would hear. And, and the one thing he couldn't do at that stage was when you said, when he said, right, what's your name? And you told him, he couldn't, he wouldn't say, how do you spell that? Because the answer would have been spell. What do you mean spell? Because people, as you say, didn't read and write. And so now the incumbent changes perhaps. And the incoming guy is from a totally different part of the country. And he hears it different again. And so now you've got a name change without anybody moving anywhere. It's what happens when they've got, even down to all the census records that have gone through over the years, every wave that's released, someone has to transcribe them. And, and it, mm. it takes them hours. I don't think people realise how many times they have to keep double-checking to try and go, have we got this absolutely right? I, uh, I personally got involved in, uh, in, trans in retranscribing parts of the 1851 census for one of the big companies a few years ago. They have got it pretty much down to a fine art. They give you an image and you then type in what you think you see on the on the image. And then it goes off and somebody else will be given the same image and they will type it in. And then the computer will check that what you've typed in is the same. If it isn't, then there will be an arbitrator who will actually come in and look and and see what's going on. So it's a lot better now than it was when it was originally. And hence we, the reason for redoing the 1851 census index. It's one of those things that, that the, the phrase AI technology, the it, it it is amazing. AI has made a huge difference 
to genealogical records because it's able to to look through data and compare stuff in the background while you're working on things, which is why you get all these sort of flags coming up going, we think we found a, a distant aunt or a cousin. And and it's not saying we have definitely, it's just going, no, you go away and double check it now, but we think mm. there's a there's a correlation here. And that, that's the bit that I think is phenomenal with AI is, is the way that it can work in the background and help. And of course, it's bound to improve because that's the nature of it, isn't it? You know, it's it, it was pretty ropey when it started, but then so is everything else when it's new. Um, so, yeah, it, it can only get better um, as long as people appreciate that it is not perfect because it's invented by people. Well, Ted Udall, thank you very much for giving your time and thought and knowledge because it's all about learning when you're doing genealogy research. Well, yeah, thanks for letting me talk to you. I, I must admit that one of the things I do um, is that whenever I give a talk somewhere on the subject of genealogy, I always end up learning something myself, always. Absolutely. And I think that's a good point to end it on. So thank you very much for, the, for, for uh, having a chat to us, Ted, and uh, I wish you every success with further research. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you. Join me next month with another episode of Armchair Genealogy. Until then, please share and repost the link to the podcast to anyone that you think would be interested. And remember, you might be turning into a true genealogist if you feel the phrase, relatively speaking, holds a truly unique meaning to you. And remember to subscribe to the podcast to be informed when new editions are published.